You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Does that sound like a good word to describe God to you? Then, when you think of different words, different adjectives to describe God, that you would think of the word relentless. What does relentless mean? It means persistent. It means not giving up. As I was preparing this sermon, my mind went to a poem. It's actually one of the better known poems in the English language. It was written by an Englishman back in the late 1800s by the name of Francis Thompson. And the poem, it's rather long. I forget how many lines it has, but something like 180. So it's a long poem. But he entitled his poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's, it's a very personal poem. Where Mr. Thompson describes his life of running away from God. He, he kept running away from God. And he was looking for meaning in life. Looking for fulfillment in life. And this and in that. And every time he would find something thinking, this is it. This is going to bring me happiness. This is going to bring me fulfillment. He, he found himself disappointed. And, and then he would hear... The footsteps of the hound of heaven. And then he'd run off to some other god, some other idol of the heart, thinking, that's going to bring me happiness. And, and yet he found himself once again disappointed. And in the background, he could hear the footsteps of the hound of heaven. Until God, the hound of heaven, in his relentless grace, overcame the wayward Francis Thompson. And he celebrated God's kindness to him, God's grace to him, the hound of heaven, and not giving up the pursuit that he was relentless in pursuing his wayward soul. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, knew the hound of heaven, didn't he? He experienced the hound of heaven. Have you? Has that been your experience? Then in your waywardness, in God's amazing grace, he gave you ears to hear the footsteps of the hound of heaven relentlessly pursuing you. And when he captures us by his sovereign grace, aren't we grateful? Aren't we grateful? We've, we've sung songs about that this morning, haven't we? Of our gratitude that the hound of heaven pursued us and caught us in his amazing, persistent, relentless, sovereign grace. Last Sunday, Pastor Mark introduced us to the book of Jonah by focusing on the first six verses. Why don't you join me in the book of Jonah? And if you have trouble finding that short book, just look right after the book of Obadiah. I, I hope that helps. <laughs> or you could use the table of contents. <laughs> Jonah's usually a couple pages in most Bibles. Pastor Mark taught us last week from those introductory verses that God had called the prophet Jonah to go on a mission, to go on a mission to the pagan city of Nineveh to announce the message of God's judgment against their evil ways. But kids, what did Jonah do? He, he ran away, didn't he? He, 
chose to disobey God. That's a clear point in the story of the book of Jonah, that Jonah decided. It was a distinctive choice he made to disobey God. And instead of going to Nineveh, he tried to run away from God. In fact, he tried to get as far away from Nineveh as he could get. He didn't want, he did not want the people of Nineveh to hear about the God who is not only the God of righteous judgment, but the God of astonishing grace. He knew, as we're going to learn in a few weeks, he, he knew that God was a merciful God. How did God reveal himself to Moses? A, a very seminal passage, a very crucial passage. It's Exodus 34, verse 6, where Moses says, I want to see you, God. I, I, I want to know what you're like, God. And, and so God reveals himself to Moses. He wants Moses to know certain key attributes of him. And, and he says to Moses up there on the mountain, he says that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and, and abounding in mercy. God says, Moses, I, I want you to know me this way. I, I want you to tell other people that this is how I am. I'm, I'm full of mercy. I'm slow to anger. Jonah knew that. He, he knew that about God. and He did not want these Ninevites to experience a God like that. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were enemies of Israel. They were pagans, ruthless, Gentile terrorists. And there's no way Jonah wanted to see them wrapped into the fold of God. So he resolved. He resolved to disobey God's clear directive. And instead of going east to Nineveh, he headed to the port of Joppa on the Palestine, Palestine coast and found a boat going about as far away as he could get from Nineveh. He asked for a passage to the town of Tarshish. Now, we don't know for sure where Tarshish was, but probably Spain, what we know today as Spain, we're on the opposite end of the Mediterranean. So he pays the fare and gets on this boat for Tarshish. Going to sail clear across the Mediterranean from the east to the west, the whole way across. So how did that Mediterranean cruise go? <laughs> I think it's so important to get a, a real appreciation for the book of Jonah is to remember something that's true about God. A key theme in the Bible is that God is on a relentless pursuit of displaying his own glory. A well-known verse, Isaiah 6.3 says, The whole earth is full of his glory. God later announced through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. Uh, my glory I give to no other. God is on this relentless pursuit of displaying his glory. He wants his glory to be seen. The heavens declare the glory of God. We declare the glory of God. He wants his glory to be seen. And I find it encouraging and fascinating in the Bible how God wants particular attributes, particular characteristics of his being to be prominent, to be displayed and enjoyed. One of those attributes that he particularly wants to be on display, enjoyed, is his attribute of mercy. 
Probably one of the more challenging passages of Scripture is Romans chapter 9. But I think getting even an infantile grasp of that phenomenally deep passage just increases our appreciation for God and His determination to put His glory on display. The Holy Spirit said through the Apostle Paul in that passage, listen to this carefully. Notice how God is determined, relentless, in putting His glory on display. It says, what if God, what if God desiring to, listen to the words, show His wrath and make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He's called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. And Paul, I imagine writing those sentences, moved emotionally, passionately, thoughtfully. He says, God is relentless in putting His glory on display. And even when He displays His wrath, that's just, the, uh, that's just like the, the, the black backdrop for the prominent out front display of His mercy. He says God wanted to make that known. God is relentless in making known His attributes of mercy. He says I want everyone, I want everyone to see that about me. That I am rich in mercy. Not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And so God in this relentless pursuit of His glory, His glorious mercy, commissioned the prophet Jonah to go to the wicked, wicked, evil, Gentile city of the Assyrians, Nineveh. But Jonah isn't cooperating, is he? Jonah is going to defy God. He's going to run away as far as he can. So I ask you a question. Is God frustrated? Has Jonah just trumped God? Has God failed? Is he going to have to move to plan B? Well, I was planning. My A plan was Jonah. guess can't get him to do it. I guess I'll have to find another way to get the gospel to the Ninevites. We're going to see today that God was not frustrated. God was not trumped. God had not failed. He is on a relentless pursuit. A relentless pursuit of displaying His glory. And He wants His glorious mercy to be displayed to the Ninevites. And He's going to go to some astonishing ends to make sure that happens. (laughs) So let's do this. Are you open to Jonah 1? You found it? We're going to read the first six verses again, just to get the backdrop, and then I'm going to push ahead to the rest of the chapter. It's only 17 verses. So you follow along now. In the book of Jonah, this is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do do you see all these prepositions here? Down and away. This is not good. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And now our passage for today. And they said to one another, Come, these would be the sailors. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Jehovah, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do with you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord! By the way, when you see those caps, L-O-R-D, it's referring to the true God, Jehovah God, Yahweh. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. And three nights. First, let's explore God's relentless pursuit of Jonah. God's relentless pursuit of Jonah. This passage is full of irony. That God moved pagan sailors, he moved pagan sailors, to shine the spotlight of God's judgment on the wayward prophet Jonah. As is often true through the centuries. Boats are often manned by people from different ethnicities. And it seems to me, reading this passage, that this particular boat that Jonah was on was similar to most boats. (laughs) That the crew was made up of men from different ethnic groups, and each of those ethnic groups would have had its own god. The storm was threatening to kill them all, sink the ship, and so they each called out to his own god, pleading for mercy, from the life-threatening storm. But the prayers to their so-called gods weren't getting them anywhere. By the way, let's just step aside just for a moment. 
don't, don't you feel sorry for these guys? I mean, can you read this story and not feel sorry for these sailors? I mean, like all sinners, they deserve God's judgment, but they hadn't done anything to deserve this particular storm. This was an unusual storm. These were experienced sailors, and yet this storm, they knew there's something different about this storm. It's worse than we've ever seen before. There's some divine intervention praying to whatever God it is, hoping to try to quell this storm. But nothing worked. Their lives were being threatened, not because of anything in particular they had done, but they were suffering because of the sin of someone else. These sailors were suffering. Their lives were being threatened because of the sin of someone else, a man who knew better, a man named Jonah. And as I was meditating on this passage these last couple of weeks, it struck me, you know what? I cannot sin without affecting other people, and neither can you. A lot of times we, we sometimes, at least sometimes, we sin thinking, well, it's not hurting anybody. It's my private sin. It's my private sin. I'm not hurting anybody. Not even realizing how our sin impacts other people. Obviously, we'll leave this anonymous, and it's nobody in this room. But I remember counseling a couple one time, a married couple, and the wife had called out her husband's sin of lust and his pornography. And when I met with him, he looked me in the eye and said, I don't see what's wrong with this. It's not hurting anybody. And I'm looking at his wife's face while he said that, and the tears were running down her cheeks. And I confess, I, I got angry. And I said, look at your wife. Look at your wife. How dare you, how dare you say your pornography is hurting anybody. But his sin, his sin is bringing grief to his wife. And we could name other sins, couldn't we? But we won't this morning. But you and I cannot sin without negatively impacting the people around us. And it is most often the people closest to us. Our spouses, our parents, our kids. Our close friends, our, our church. You, you cannot sin in isolation. Sin affects your relationship with God, but it also affects the people around you. And I read this story and I feel for these pagan sailors with their limited understanding, knew that they were suffering because of somebody's sin. So they wanted to know whose fault is it? Who's to blame for this storm? And so they cast lots. Who angered which God to bring on this storm? And guess who won the lottery? Not maybe it's lose the lottery. <laughs> The lot fell to Jonah. One of their passengers, maybe their only passenger, I don't know, but the lot fell to their passenger, Jonah. And these sailors realized that it's his fault. There were, our lives are at risk. You know, we read that with 21st century eyes, and, and we think, oh, they're so superstitious. Well, let's not get too hasty here. <laughs> there, there's a proverb. It's Proverbs 
1633, I think it is, yeah, 1633 that says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That God determined the outcome of that lottery. He, he let these people know on the ship it was Jonah. So the, so the sailors start pumping Jonah with questions. Who are you? Read, read verse 8 again. How does verse 8 read? Listen to these questions. These men are desperate, aren't they? Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? you know, they want to know, who are you and what are you doing? How, how did this all come about? Jonah gives a hypocritical, half-hearted confession. Did you catch that? Look at verse 9 again. See if you think of this as half-hearted. It's hypocritical. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear. You could translate that I worship. I fear I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. Does that sound hypocritical to you? I mean, he's saying this with his lips, and it's actually not a bad confession of faith, is it? He's saying God is the God of the sea and the land. He made the sea, made the land. That's the true God. I mean, Jonah's actually giving some pretty good theology here. But the irony is, his life is not backing up his lips. His lips are saying God is the God. He's the creator God. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land. And yet here he is confessing with his lips, I worship, I fear the God of the sea and the land. And he's using the sea to try to run away from God. I mean, the whole thing just packed full of irony and hypocrisy. And I think these sailors probably saw through it. You know, there's something else about Jonah's confession that brings me grief and conviction. Did you notice what question he never answered? They asked him, what's your occupation? What, what was his occupation? He was, a, he was a preacher. He was a prophet. They asked him, what's your occupation? And he wouldn't answer that. It probably, if he had answered it, it would just add to his embarrassment and shame. So now the pagan sailors are in their desperation asking Jonah, what have you done? What are we supposed to do with you? How could we get the sea to calm down that we might live? And what's Jonah's response? What's his response? Throw me into the sea. Throw me into the sea and the sea's going to calm down. Now, if we just read that in a kind of a superficial, cursory way, we might think, well, how noble of him. How noble of Jonah saying, well, just throw me overboard. I'll, I'll, I'll take the hit for the team, you know. Throw me overboard and you're going to live. I mean, it sounds virtuous on the surface. But then you think about it and there's nothing virtuous at all. In fact, it's grievous that he's saying, well, the solution is let me just die. Those of you that were here last week, when Mark preached those first six verses, when the captain went down into the hold probably to get more cargo to throw overboard, he, he found Jonah asleep. Do you remember what he said to Jonah? If you don't remember, you can look in your Bible. What, what did that captain say to Jonah during the storm? Arise and Pray. Arise and pray to your God. And so now the sailors are asking him, what should we do? And he says, throw me overboard. Just kill, just kill me. Just kill me. Do you hear Jonah praying anytime here? 
Do you see Jonah praying any time? Is Jonah praying? There's no record at all of him praying. The prophet of God, the preacher, the prophet of God, there's no record of him praying. What if? I mean, this is, this is speculation. But what if the sailor said, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do to get the storm to quiet down? What if Jonah would have said, it's my fault. I'm, I've been sinning. I've been running away from God. I chose to disobey. And here and now, I want to confess my sin to the Lord. In your presence, I want to confess my sin to the Lord. And I want to commit to repenting right now. Guys, could we turn this boat around? Could, can we turn the boat around, guys? No, hypothetically. If Jonah would have prayed, if he would have prayed, if he would have humbled himself before the Lord, confessed his sin and committed to repentance, might not God have cooled the storm? Might not have God said, thank you, and calmed the storm? But there's no confession. There's no repentance. There's no prayer. Jonah just says, throw me overboard. The sailors didn't want to do it. <laughs> Tell you what, let's spend some time thinking about these sailors for a minute. And I want, want us to see God's amazing pursuit of these pagan sailors. This is part of the story that often gets missed. Interestingly, ironically, these, I keep calling them pagan sailors. They were not believers at this point. These pagan sailors had an evident fear of God that exceeded Jonah's fear of God. And so here he was, theologically informed. He would have known the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that had already been written. He would have been theologically informed. He, he knew God in ways they didn't. And yet with their very limited knowledge of God, they, they feared God more than he did. Now this is something that is true of everybody, every human being who has reasoning capacities. Paul says in the book of Romans at the beginning, he says in chapter 1, for what can be known about God, what can be known about God is plain to them. And in other words, plain to all human beings because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. One of the purposes of creation, the created order, is to show all human beings, all image bearers, that God is a powerful God, that God is God. And these pagan sailors, even though they weren't familiar with the Old Testament, unless they picked up bits and pieces when they were around some of the Hebrews, they, they were theologically very limited in their understanding. And yet, because they were image bearers, God had put in their hearts this innate knowledge that God is and God is powerful, and they could see that in the created world around them. And in particular, during this storm, I'm sure they looked at the sea and the storm, and they're thinking, God is a powerful God. And they were afraid of him while Jonah slept. Do you, do you see the irony? That this man who knew so much was so callous toward the true God. These men showed compassion on Jonah. Jonah is evidencing at this point no compassion on the people of Nineveh. 
he's showing no compassion on these Gentiles. And yet these Gentiles are showing compassion on him. And he says, throw me into the sea. And they say, well, well let's, oh, let's, let's try something else. Guys, get the oars. Dig deep. Dig deep, boys. Dig deep. Let's head for the shore. And they're rowing against the storm, and they're not getting anywhere. Isn't that like us? Isn't that like us? We get into predicaments. And we think, well, let's just try harder. And we don't turn to the Lord. And these guys were just trying harder. They were digging deeper. They were, they were trying to row their hearts out to get to shore, and the Lord wasn't going to let them do that. So they realized eventually we can't solve this on our own. We can't solve this. And so they're still bothered by the idea of throwing this guy overboard. And so they pray. They, they actually pray to the God, the true God. They cry out to him and said, don't blame us. If we're doing the wrong thing, please don't hold it against us. They're acknowledging their uneasiness with throwing this guy overboard. So they ask for God's pardon in case they were doing the wrong thing. And then they throw Jonah over, don't they? They throw him overboard. And what happened? You kids that are in the room, what happened as soon as they threw Jonah over? Storm calmed down. It's like God threw the storm switch to off. <laughs> okay, we're done. He, thro he, he throws the storm button to off. And, and the storm calmed down. You know what's fascinating? Did you notice verse 16? It says, Then the men feared the Lord, the sailors, feared Jehovah exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Jehovah and made vows. It is quite possible, I want to say probable, that those sailors were converted that day out on the boat. These, yes, Gentiles. These Gentiles were converted by God's astonishing grace that day. And, and I know it's easy to read that verse and think, oh, that's just a foxhole conversion. Think about it for a minute, friends. A foxhole conversion is one of those temporary professions of faith that people make in the midst of their plight, in the midst of the danger. You know, they call it a foxhole conversion because soldiers that are in the battle, in their foxhole, think, I might die. God, get me out of this and I'll follow you. And so they survive the battle and what happens? They go back to their old ways. It was temporary. This profession of faith, this worshiping of God, didn't happen during the storm, it happened after it. So when these sailors realized, we're going to live after all. It wasn't during the storm that they made this confession of faith, this worship. It was after the storm. After it was pretty clear that they were going to live after all. It is quite possible, I'll stick my neck out and say probable, that these Gentile sailors were converted that day out on the Mediterranean. Somebody, one of them had to tell their story to somebody to get it in the book of Jonah. Think about that for a while. <laughs> but let's, let's go now. Let's go under the water. The sea's calming down. The sea's calming down. And let's pick back up on God's relentless pursuit of Jonah. But I want us to see something more in verse 17. It's not just picking up God's relentless pursuit of Jonah. But it's God's relentless pursuit of the Ninevites, at least indirectly. Look at verse 17 again. 
The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God showed amazing grace to Jonah personally by sending this fish. Now I'm going to make a few comments pastorally to you that I feel like this might be the best time to say it. Don't get caught up with the fish. <laughs> Pastor Mark said this last week, you know, the book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's about God. <laughs> the book of Jonah is about God. Don't get so caught up with the fish that you lose sight of God. People ask me sometimes, well, was it a whale or was it a fish? If it was a whale, what kind of whale? If it was a fish, what kind of fish? And we're reading this with 21st century Western eyes. And even if you only had eighth grade biology, you know that we divide the animal kingdom into different categories. And there's cold-blooded fish, and there's warm-blooded sea mammals like whales and dolphins. And so we separate these different sea creatures according to our modern zoological categories. The, the, the ancient Hebrews didn't operate by our categories. They had categories like big sea creature. <laughs> big sea creature, which... Could be a whale, it could be a big fish. Didn't matter, it was a big thing that lives in the sea. Well, that's the kind of word that Jonah uses here, the author of Jonah uses. He's saying that there's a, there's a big sea creature. Could have been a fish, could have been a whale. Quite frankly, it doesn't matter to us. The point of it is that God, in his astonishing, sovereign grace, created this big thing, this big fish, and had it at exactly the right place, at exactly the right time, to swallow Jonah. Think about that. That fish was in exactly the right place, at exactly the right time, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah spent the next three days in the belly of that fish, just like Jesus would spend three days in the belly of the tomb. And then, figuratively speaking, was resurrected when we'll find out at the end of chapter 2, he got unceremoniously vomited out on the beach, maybe near where he started. God was relentless in his pursuit of Jonah. And even though Jonah said, I'd rather die than obey the Lord, God wouldn't have that. And in his relentless grace to Jonah personally, he spared him by sending this fish. But I think there's more to the story than that. God was also showing his relentless pursuit of grace to the Ninevites. Because he was going to get Jonah turned around from his westward journey back eastward so he could head to Nineveh and announce the word of God, which we'll hear about in the coming weeks. God wanted those Ninevites, those yes, evil, Gentile Ninevites, those terroristic Assyrians, he wanted them to hear about him. He wanted to put his mercy on display, and his mission will go on. So as we look back over this passage, I thought before we wrap it up, I want to do two related things to you. I want you to think about these verses in Jonah 1. What do we see about God? And what do we see about ourselves, particularly as we look at Jonah? So what do, help me out here. Uh, those of you that are guests, don't be uncomfortable if someone answers out loud. We, we do that here sometimes. Um, there are a number of attributes of God, a number of character traits of God that we see in Jonah 1. Do, do any of you want to mention one? Uh, what character trait, what attribute of God did you notice in Jonah chapter 1? 
is is patience. That's good. Yes, control. Mercy. These are all good. We could probably make a long list, but let me pick some here. Um, How about his omniscience? He knows everything. How about this one? This is a word we don't often use. His omnipresence. You could probably walk around the aisles of Owens or Walmart for a long time and not hear anyone use that word. (laughs) But it's a good word. (laughs) Omnipresence. What that word means is that everything is always in view of God. That everything is always present before God. That he sees all things all the time, everywhere. I think, for instance, of what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a good verse for you to memorize. Hebrews 4, 3, 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. You know, Jonah was trying to get away from God, and yet God is omnipresent. There's nowhere he could get away from God. There there was nowhere Jonah could get away from the presence of God. That everything is always present before God. Everything, everyone is always naked before him. He can see everything, everyone, all the time. Jonah would have sung the Psalms growing up. A lot of the Psalms, most of the Psalms were written before Jonah ever was born. And probably 250, 300 years before Jonah was even born, King David wrote a song that we know as Psalm 139. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Jonah would have grown up singing this song in worship services. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Jonah knew that. He knew that he couldn't flee from the presence of God. That God is an omnipresent God. Another attribute we see of God in in Jonah 1 is his omnipotence. His all-powerfulness. No, no, no one can stop the hand of God. Where, where did that heresy come from? No one can stop the hand of God and say, Oh, no, you don't, God. I'm calling this one. I mean, Jonah was, in essence, mocking God and thinking he was going to flee to Tarshish. He wasn't going to trump God. He wasn't going to frustrate God. God is God. He's God. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That no one could stop him. God is sovereign. Omnipotence has to do with God's ability to do all things. His sovereignty has to do with his authority to do all things. You combine those two, that he's omnipotent, his ability to do all things with his sovereignty, his authority to do all things, you have a pretty awesome God. God was the one behind the storm. God was the one behind the fish. God was the one behind the conversion of those sailors. And God was behind capturing Jonah and his waywardness. He's an omnipotent God. He's a sovereign God. And as one of you already mentioned, he's a merciful God. And if I could repeat our theme this morning, God is a tenaciously gracious, 
a relentlessly merciful God. Jonah deserved to be killed in those ways. And yet he sent that living rescue submarine to spare the life of Jonah. And you and I, my friends, you and I, to a person in this room, every one of us deserves to die eternally in the sea of God's righteous wrath. Every one of us. Every one of us deserves to die eternally in the righteous judgment of God. And yet God sent His Son as the rescuer. He sent His Son as the Savior to rescue us from the sea of His wrath. My mind goes to the book of Ephesians. And Paul says in chapter 2, he says, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That, that's your resume. That's my resume. There, there, there's not a human being apart from Jesus Christ who doesn't have a resume like that. That we are all under the wrath of God. We were by nature children of wrath because of our, our sinfulness, because of our sins. And if Paul would have just ended his letter there, it would be so depressing. But there are some precious, precious words that follow. Because the very next verse begins like this. But God, but God. Here we are all deserving of God's wrath. But God. And then Paul says, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And my friends, if you're here today as a believer, you have been pursued and caught by a relentlessly sovereign, merciful Savior. And aren't we eternally Where do we see ourselves in Jonah 1? We see ourselves, figuratively speaking, in the life of Jonah. Missionally. Missionally. I think this is so important. If we're going to truly, truly get everything we can from the book of Jonah to remember that God made the Israelites His special people. Yes, He wanted them to be the recipients of His grace. But He also wanted them to understand, I'm putting you here in the world on a mission. I want you to be my light to the world. I want you to bless the world as I bless you by you telling people about me. And yet so many of the Jews, so many of them, began to think of themselves as somehow entitled to God's grace. We're the good people. We're the religious people. And we deserve His grace. Now those, those pagans out there, those pagans out there, those those pagans out there deserve God's wrath. They deserve doom. And Jonah had that prejudice, that racial, religious prejudice that said, well, I know I deserve God's mercy because of who I am. But, but those, those pagan Gentiles out there in Nineveh, those, those, those terrorists, those people that aren't like me, they don't deserve God's mercy. They deserve God's wrath. And you know, Jonah was rather 
typical in some ways of a lot of the Jewish attitudes in this era. But let us not shake our heads and tisk tisk. Because how many times in this politicized, volatile era in which we live, do we Christians think that way? Oh, we're we're the good church going people. We we have God's mercy. Well, we deserve his mercy. We're good people. But Lord, look at all those evil people out there. Look at all those evil people out there, Lord. Judge them. Judge them. They deserve your judgment. God, deal with all those, those evil people out there. And, and we're praying for their doom instead of praying for their salvation. Oh, Lord, I never deserved your mercy, and yet you, you put your mercy on display in saving an ill-deserving sinner like me. God, they don't deserve your mercy. But would you do it again, Lord? Would, would you do it again? Would, would, you, would you show those people your mercy like you showed us today? Would you honor yourself? Would you glorify yourself in bringing mercy to those people who often make our lives difficult, who mock us, who take away our rights? Lord, would you show them Jesus said, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And I see myself in Jonah's mission. How many times do I get upset about those evil people out there and I'm more angry than I am brokenhearted. But I'm not brokenhearted, aching for their conversion. And how often do we see ourselves in Jonah, not just missionally, but personally. When we run away from God, we all do it at times. And some of you are right now on this quest to run away from God. Have you been running away from God? Trying to avoid Him? Avoid eye contact with Him. And as we go down that foolish, futile attempt to flee from the presence of God. Our hearts can become increasingly callous. Our consciences become increasingly callous and somehow choosing to sin gets a little bit easier the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time. We're running away from God. But if He has a claim on you, my friend, do you hear His footsteps? Do you hear the hound of heaven coming? No, no more. No farther. Stop trying to run away from me. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to restore you. I'm here to show you my grace and my mercy. I'm going to put my mercy on display in your life. And so if you're here today, and the Holy Spirit is giving you ears to hear the footsteps of the hound of heaven, And I ask you, stop running away from God. Stop trying to run away from God. And instead turn to Him. Last night as I was going over my notes, my mind went to the testimony of a 
a leader, a Christian leader, a spiritual leader, I'll say, that committed heinous sins and the Lord pursued him in his relentless grace and finally broke him and restored him. And he said this, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In a new spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up like by the heat of summer. And then he says, in this poem he wrote, he said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That was King David, Psalm 33. And I would ask you today, if the Spirit's heavy on you, heavy on you, you say, I'm, I'm feeling the heaviness of my determination to, to run from God. Confess your sin. Don't hide it anymore. Confess your sin. Cry out to Him. And He will forgive you and give you His grace.